Chapters 1 through 3, as you will recall, taught us who we are in Christ, our position in Jesus Christ. Several weeks ago, I likened it to the, the, uh, the, the power plant, the engine in an automobile. This is who you are in Christ, all the resources that you have. Then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul teaches us how to practice that position. In other words, how to walk, how to live, how to live out our, our talk in our walk. I liken it to a road map. Uh, here's the power plant. Now here's where you need to go in living out your Christian life. Now Paul wants us to understand in spite of all that we know, all the knowledge, all the truth we have, in spite of all these principles, all this resurrection power that enables us, this dynamite power that that Paul speaks of, he tells us in, in the end of chapter 6, it will not be easy, folks. He wants us to understand uh, that we cannot take anything for granted. Even though you may understand your job, your position in your job, you may not always be able to carry it out. Even though, as Jackson taught last week, on what it means to live, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, what it means in our family lives, how to treat husbands and how to treat wives, how to parent our children, that even though we know all these principles, it will not be easy. It may be difficult to fulfill that purpose and that cause. So Paul wants us to understand that there is something more going on. And that's why he ends this letter reminding us that the something more is our enemy, the evil one, the adversary, the devil himself, Satan himself, is out to uh, withstand any good thing that God is trying to do in your life and in my life. And so Paul ends this letter with what I consider to be a call to arms. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to chapter 6 as we read through this uh, this call to arms to prepare us for battle. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is just take 10 through 13, because I think there's two key principles here that Paul wants us to understand. Then we'll look at 14 through through 20. Paul begins by saying, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist. The NIV translates that also to stand in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. There was a time in the life of Martin Luther when his conflict with Satan became so real that it almost took on a physical manifestation to the point that in anger over Satan, while Martin Luther was at his desk, he picked up his inkwell and he threw it at the devil. That inkwell splattered, broke, and splattered ink all over the wall. And that, that ink stained the wall in his study. And it remained there for many, many years. Not only as a reminder to his friends, but to Martin Luther, just about this vivid conflict that he had with the enemy. Now granted... Our spiritual intensity may not be at times as great as Martin Luther, but we need to understand that it is nonetheless a very real, vivid conflict in our own lives as well. We need to believe and understand that the believer and Satan are in mortal combat. Now, Paul wants us to understand right off the bat 
in verse 12, uh, two key principles. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says that we are in a struggle or a battle, or in some translations, they, uh, they refer to it as a wrestling match. We wrestle not. Now, Paul uses these words here, I think, I believe, not simply to talk about an athletic game, a simple athletic game, but one that was of life and death. You have to understand, in that culture, Paul was probably probably referring to a wrestling match between two men where it could cost a man his life. In those days, wrestlers would enter into the ring and they would struggle and wrestle to get their hands around the throat of their opponent, not only to, to get their shoulders to touch the ground, but literally to press their head to the ground. And in those days, if the head was held to the ground for a certain amount of time, it meant that that opponent would lose his life. However, if that opponent only had his shoulders touch the ground, but, but withstand the, the opposition and, and wrestled and struggled and kept his head up, he would live to fight another day. Well, that's the idea here. Satan is wrestling with us through his demons, and he wants to get this stranglehold on us. He wants to pin our heads to the ground. He wants to make us ineffective in our Christian life. Now, think about this for just a moment. Satan and his demons understand Scripture, don't they? They can read. They can read the Bible. They know their destiny. They know that a bottomless pit awaits them. They know that there's an eternal place for them to be held for eternity. Now, what are they going to do? They're not just going to roll over. They want to get a stranglehold on the things of God to prevent that from happening, even though we know, ultimately, they lose and we win. Praise God for that, huh? Now, secondly, the other thing that Paul wants us to notice in verse 12 is who our battle is against. Uh, Notice that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's literally blood and flesh. But then Paul goes on to describe who that battle is against. It's a spiritual enemy. You see... That's a good reason why we should not hate men and women when they do evil to us. That's why Jesus himself hated sin and not the sinner, because he understood what was behind the sinner, didn't he? That's why Jesus wept for sinners. You see, Jesus understood that they were the dupes of Satan. He had great pity for those that were caught in the schemes the wily schemes of of the demons and devils. You see, our enemy, folks, is not against the Democrats or the Republicans. It is not against conservatives or liberals. It's not against the abortionist or the gay activist rights people. It's not our non-Christian neighbors who dog comes over and does his thing on my yard occasionally. It is not our boss. It's not the humanists. It's not the media. And listen very closely to this, people. It's not our spouse. And it's not our children sometimes when they're caught in rebellion. See, no one in terms of flesh and blood is our enemy. They are only victims of the evil one. Now notice also in verses 11 through 13 that because our enemy is not physical but spiritual, Paul wants us to have a thorough knowledge, a thorough understanding, basically a healthy respect for who our enemy is. And we have to do that, don't we? We must be aware of the strategies and tactics of our enemy before we enter into the battle. See, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, uh, we're going to be caught off guard. 
we will tell ourselves, I don't need this spiritual armor that Paul is talking about. So we go out in the battle, depending on our own puny strength, and what happens is we quickly become defeated. Many of you uh, read or heard on the news here just about a month ago today uh, about Captain Scott O'Grady. Remember the, uh, the Air Force pilot that was shot down over Bosnia by the Serbs? I was intrigued. What a fascinating story of survival. But it confused me that here we are, such a, a powerful, strong nation as America is, with all of our engineering, with all of the equipment, with all the strategies and strength of an Air Force, that we were shot down. And so I, I talked to a couple of pilots uh, here that attend both the morning and evening service, and I asked them, I says, tell me more about this. You, Both these guys are captains. They fly, one's a weapon, I think both of them are weapons op- officers. One flies in a B-1, the other flies in F-4. So tell me what happened. And, and, and if you read Time Magazine, I hadn't read it, but, but if you read, I just got the article this weekend. Time Magazine also disclosed what happened there. See, our, the, the NATO intelligence did not pick up the fact that the Serbs had moved in this SAM, this surface-to-air missile. And so our intelligence was faulty. And so when, when Captain O'Grady flew over at the, at the height, the elevation that he did, he was really a, a sitting duck because we did not know that that SAM missile was there. When they deployed that missile, it came up on the underbelly of that plane where it said in Time Magazine that, that they he only had like 20 seconds before he realized he was under attack. And had uh, Scott O'Grady not been prepared well enough to survive on the ground, just having that missile lost at him could have uh, taken his life. And, and the point is that because we didn't have all the knowledge, all of the intelligence that we needed to have, we almost lost one of our servicemen because of faulty intelligence. Well, we need to know our enemy's tactics, and Paul lists that for us in, in 11 through 13. First of all, notice in verse 12 that he tells us that they are rulers and that they... And by the way, that word rulers can be translated principalities. And the second word there is they are powerful. In other words, that's the first thing we need to understand. These wicked, evil forces are powerful. Now, some people think that these two words, rulers and principalities, refer to some different ranks, a hierarchy of hell, of different demons. But I'm not sure that that we can really conclude that. But what we can draw from these two words is that the enemy wields power. He has authority, an incredible amount of authority. Jesus himself said that Satan is the prince of this world. See, Jesus recognized that the world is in the grip of Satan himself. And and until Jesus comes back and sets things right, until Jesus returns and takes back what is rightfully his, that is you and I as believers as well as the world, it is in the control of Satan and his demons. They want to exercise this considerable amount of power. Secondly, notice in in 12b, Paul says that they are wicked. Now, he uses the term spiritual forces of wickedness. In other words, when you think of power, power really is a neutral term, isn't it? But what Paul says is they use their power for evil, not for good, for destructive purposes rather than for uh, constructive purposes. They hate the light. They live in darkness. They operate in a way that they control worldwide rulers behind the scenes. Uh, Darkness is their natural habitat. They operate in in what Paul says, the heavenly places, which I believe is in the the sphere of invisible reality. I used to tell high school students that 
If we could put on those night goggles, but they were spiritual night goggles, it would be as if we could see a tremendous battle going on out there. Demons, angels battling over political agendas, social agendas, religious agendas, working behind the scenes in their wickedness. As J.B. Phillips put it, he said, they are spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil itself. They have no moral principles, folks. They have no code of honor, no higher feelings. As one commentator put, he says, they recognize no Geneva Convention. They're about to use any kind of warfare and armor uh, to utterly uh, destroy us. Thirdly, Paul tells us in verse 11, at the end of that passage, he says, they are cunning. Notice that the translation says the phrase is schemes of the devil. The devil is true when he comes to us, isn't he? He doesn't come as some demonic, evil uh, dragon from the very pit of hell, but he comes as what? An angel of light. They're scheming. They're cunning. They're wily. They come to us unsuspecting. Now, Peter says sometimes they come to us as a roaring lion, but, but I believe that more often than not, at least in my own life, he comes as a slithering serpent in tall grass where he's undetected. John Barnes, when he owned the Wild Horse Ranch up there west of Council, I used to hunt up there with a bunch of kids, and one day I was out for a walk in the tall grass, and I was walking along, and I thought, this seems rather strange. There's no wind, it's perfectly calm, but the grass is moving. <laughs> and there was a rattlesnake right there. That's the way he comes in, sly, slithering. And uh, I know that some of you may have encountered open persecution, open temptation as a roaring lion, but, but I believe he prefer, prefers to seduce us into compromise, to deceive us with his lies. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that possibly he is most cunning when he succeeds at convincing us that he doesn't even exist. He went on to say, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the very existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, the one with the fiery darts. He's wily, he's cunning, he's wicked, and he's powerful and we need to understand, because he has that arsenal, that we need to be ready. And that's why Paul says, in these first four verses, four times, he says, Stand, stand your ground, stand against, stand firm. And I believe that this repetition of the word stand four times emphasizes the need for Christian stability. Folks, wobbly Christians that enter into this kind of a battle without a firm foothold in Christ are going to, to be easy prey for the devil. And so that's why Paul lists for us six pieces of equipment. Let's read verses 14 through 17. Paul says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. The NIV translates that, Put on the belt of truth, I believe it says. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness... And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So we see the first three pieces of armor right there. Girding your loins, the breastplate, and then shod in your feet. In addition to all, he says, taking up the shield of faith 
with which he will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The first piece of equipment that Paul tells us our Lord gives us is to have our loins girded with truth. In other words, a belt of truth or truthfulness. A soldier's belt in, in the Romans' time was, was essentially made of, of leather. It was a very important, the first piece of equipment that he put on. And what it provided, what it was designed for, was to gather up the loose, loose clothing of his tunic and he would tuck it in his belt. Secondly, it provided a place for the breastplate to, to rest against. And then third and finally, it allowed for a scabbard to come out of the belt where he could, could uh, stay his sword. In other words, uh, the belt uh, was designed to, to tuck in one's clothing so that when it came time for the battle, he was prepared. He wouldn't get tangled up in this loose, loose clothing. So as they marched onward or as ha- they had to run, this, this clothing would not get entangled in his feet, in his legs, or his sword, or his breastplate. Now, Paul tells us that the Christian soldier's belt is truth. What exactly is he talking about here? Well, many commentators in the early centuries thought that, that Paul was referring to the truth. In other words, the Word of God, the revelation of God that is through Christ, that is revealed in the Scriptures. If taken this way, it would mean that God's Word, the truth, will set us free from all the wily, cunning schemes of the devil. That's what Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. The second way of looking at it, the way that I prefer is that because the definite article in the Greek here is missing, it doesn't say the truth, it just says the belt of truth, which could refer to a sense of truthfulness, a sense of sincerity, integrity, honesty, faithfulness. In other words, a man or a woman's character is, a, is identified or demonstrated with this attitude of truthfulness. Let's face it, if a, a, a man or a woman is faithful in their relationship to you as a friend, they are what? They're fully committed to you. They're reliable. They're constant. They're conscientious. And I believe that's what Paul is getting at here, is that, that the, the belt of truth is an attitude of readiness, of preparedness. It's an attitude of being truthful in your relationship and commitment to Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the term here, the phrase, have your loins girded, was associated with Hebrew thinking, uh, with the idea of readiness and preparedness. Remember when the Israelites left the land of Egypt? Remember what they were told? Gird up your loins. Be prepared. Get ready. A common phrase in Jewish thought. Peter uses this in 1 Peter 1.13, where he says, gird up the loins of your mind. And what he has in, in mind there is that Get your mind ready, prepared for the things of God. So I believe Paul's point here is with his first piece of equipment is that we have an attitude of truthfulness, an attitude of sincerity, integrity, uh, honesty, that we are committed to Jesus Christ and we are committed to the batter, battle that's uh, facing us. We cannot go into battle with some sort of internal deceit. We cannot enter into this spiritual battle not being committed because if we do uh, the devil you can bet is committed to deceiving us and getting us off the path of truthfulness now the second piece of equipment is is called the breastplate of righteousness historically this uh, breastplate was a, a piece of metal sometimes solid metal armor uh, 
Other times it was a chain link uh, kind of vest that they would, would place on. It was to deter a, a sword, a spear, an arrow that would be flung at the opponent. And, and what does a breastplate cover? Well, it covers two real vital areas, doesn't it, of a person's body. One, the heart which is a very vital area, and secondly, the bowel area, the stomach, and the other functional organs of the body. Now, to the Jew, this had great significance. Symbolically, the heart represented the mind. Remember what the Bible says? As a man thinks in his what? In his heart, so is he. Jesus says it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but it's what comes out of his heart. See, either evil or good comes out of one's heart, and that's why they came up with this idea that it represented or symbolized the heart. The second area, that of the bowels, the stomach, was associated with the Jews' think, uh, emotional uh, aspect, the, the feeling area of a person, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because whenever you're under an incredible amount of stress or tension, what goes on in your body? Oh, your stomach gets all jumbled up. Uh, it gets tense. You get knots down here in this area. All sorts of things happen. Now, if we can draw this across to the imagery here of the armor that Paul is speaking of, here's what I think Paul's getting at. Satan wants to attack us in two vital areas. One is in our thinking, our heart, and two is in our feelings or emotions, that, that bowel area. You see, Satan wants to feed your thinking. Uh, process with false information. He wants to cloud our minds. He wants us to, to believe in false doctrines and lies. He wants to appeal to those wrong parts of our emotions, lust, those areas. He wants us to wrongly understand these things, to confuse uh, the interpretation of the scriptures. He wants to get us to the point where we will say, Ah, oh, that sin isn't that bad, Dennis. Yesterday I had breakfast with a young man that I hadn't seen in about four or five years. He was part of a youth group, moved on, and he I just bumped into him at Payless one day, and we decided to sit down and have a cup of coffee. And as we talked and explored where he had been in his life and what was going on, he explained to me about his living situation with this woman who was not his wife. And basically, he had come to this conclusion that, Dennis, it's really not that bad. I mean, it just seems logical that if I live with this woman, I will be better prepared to know if I want to marry her or not. You see, that's how Satan literally drowns us in a sea of sins so that it becomes, so that we, uh, we take it in, we become tolerant of it. It, it entertains us to the point that we, we begin to think that it's not really as evil as it is. So what does Satan do? He has us laughing at sin on TV. He has me listening to music at times that's depicting sin in a very beautiful, wonderful, majestic way. And we're caught off guard, aren't we? And from there he moves to wanting to destroy our conscience because see, it's our conscience that the red flag goes up and says, wait a minute, Dennis, you're, you're getting in over your head here. The water's deep. It's dangerous. But he wants to sear a conscience that once warned you and me but no longer will warn us. So I believe what Paul is saying is we put on this breastplate of righteousness, it will protect two vital areas, our heart, our thinking process, as well as our emotions, those feelings that we get where the devil flings those fiery darts.
Now, what exactly is this righteousness in the Christian soldier's life? This breastplate of righteousness. Just make a note of Isaiah 59, 17. We, we don't have time this morning to look at that passage, but if you go back and read it, we are told there that God himself puts on righteousness like a breastplate, it says. And in the context there, in Isaiah, uh, the word righteousness stands for uprightness or integrity of character. So one of the ways to view this piece of equipment is the way we protect our thinking. The way that we protect our emotions is by living a righteous, holy life. Now remember we said in in chapters 1 through 3 we discover what our position is. Well, our position with Christ, when God looks at Dennis Dixon, he sees me clothed with the breastplate of righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's my position. But you know why you're here this morning? I believe for everyone, well, we're here for a lot of different reasons, but... One of the main reasons we're here is because we want our practice to match our position in Jesus Christ. That's why we come to worship together. That's why we get involved in home Bible studies where there's accountability. That's why we study God's Word because we want to practice our righteousness. We are positionally already righteous. But we want our practice to match that. Well, what happens when our practice does not match our position? That old accuser comes to me almost daily and he says, Dennis, you blew it again. He says it to you too, doesn't he? Well, what do I say back? I say, wait a minute, Satan. I have the breastplate of righteousness. When God looks at Dennis Dixon, he sees me clothed in righteousness. Get behind me, Satan. Get out of here. Because I have that kind of righteousness. And see, when the devil makes accusations, sometimes he's really accurate, isn't he? We do mess up. And the devil is right on when he points the finger sometimes. But fortunately, it's not my breastplate, but it's the breastplate of Jesus Christ that protects us. The third piece of equipment, Paul says, is having your feet shod with a preparation of the gospel of peace in verse 15. What Paul had in mind here was what the the Roman soldiers called a caliga. It was a half boot. It was open-toed, heavy leather sole on the bottom with spikes. Boy, uh... Uh, Reebok and Nike, they'd have made a killing back in these days because they'd had all these soldiers outfitted with all these great shoes, tennis shoes for doing battle with little spikes in them. But the idea behind these boots, they were, they were tied to the ankles and, and shins is so that they could go out and travel long distances over rough terrain and move quickly. Uh, you, you talk to any, any uh, people involved in the military and they'll tell you that one of the first things that they want to protect on a soldier's body is his feet. Uh, If a man's feet are wiped out, they're not going anywhere, are they? They're stranded. Matter of fact, uh, both Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were, uh, all their victories were largely due to the fact that they equipped their men with good shoes to move rapidly to overtake their enemies quickly without doing damage to their own soldiers' feet. Now, the word here for preparation that Paul uses simply means to be made ready or to be equipped. So the idea Paul has, I think, here in mind of the soldier is that you be made ready and be equipped for battle. Now, Paul tells us that the Christian soldier is to be made ready or equipped for battle through this, these feet or these shoes that are prepared with the gospel of peace. Now, some take this to mean that we should be ready to, uh, to, to announce the good news, the gospel, uh, at 
any moment, in any situation when we encounter and fight the devil. And even though that's true, we always do need to be ready in season and out to give a testimony for the hope, the faith that we have within us. I don't believe that that's what Paul is talking about here. Notice what the first word is in verse 14. What is it? Stand. See, Paul's not talking about going out and preaching. He's talking about standing where we're at in reference to this evil, this battle that we are about to take place in. It's all about standing when we're in conflict with Satan. So what is Paul getting at about this gospel of peace? Well, I believe in in keeping things really simple as I read Scripture. Gospel means good news. Peace means peace. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 5 for just a minute. A wonderful passage that talks about what this gospel of peace is really all about. Kind of a, a short theology. I get confused when I'm doing first service. We get out at 1015, Bill? Is that right? Okay. Been a while. I think last time I had you folks, I ran you over. I promise not to do that again. Now, Paul says in, uh, in verse 5, Oh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. We're going to get just a basic little theology on man, okay? Paul tells us that we were helpless. The word there can be translated weak, okay? So in verse 7, we find out that man was weak. In verse 7, it tells us that scarcely would a man die for a good man. You know, on your best day, doing the best thing you could possibly do, who would really die for you? He says, who would die for an unrighteous man? So there we find out in verse 7, we're all unrighteous. Then in verse 8, Paul says, well, God demonstrates his love for for us in this way, that we were all sinners. So we find out we were sinners. Then in verse 9, he tells us that before we knew Christ, we were unjustified. But he justified us. Then we find out in, in verse 10, that we were enemies, objects of God's wrath. So there, there you have a picture of mankind. Let me list them for us. It's a wonderful list. We're weak, we're unrighteous, we're sinful, we're unjustified, we're unsaved, we are objects of wrath. That, people, is you and me. But what Paul does is he goes back through and he counters every one of those things, doesn't he? This is what we did, but this is what God did. We were helpless, but he helped us. We were sinners, but he died for us. He loved us. We were unjustified, but he justified us to the blood of Jesus Christ. We were enemies, but now we are reconciled to Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel of peace? Here's what it is. Men and women were at war with God. That made us enemies. But what did Christ do? Look at verse 1 of chapter 5 of Romans. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is that you and I are at peace with God. We are on the same team. We're in a war, but he's on our team and we are on his team. And this is what I think that that Paul is saying here. Have feet that are shod with these shoes, this gospel, this good news of, of peace, so that you and I can stand firm. So when the devil comes to us, we can say, hey, look, Satan... You can come against me with all you got because I've got shoes that are anchored in the ground, immovable, because I am at peace with God. And he is on my team. We are fighting the same war and it's against you. John chapter 18, wonderful story. 
and we won't read it this morning, but you go back and look at it. I ran across it last week, and it's a story about Jesus right before his betrayal. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples, and what does he tell the disciples? He says, pray. (laughs) Don't fall asleep. Pray. Stay alert. It's kind of like what we need to do, you know, in the battle. So the disciples snooze off, and John, the apostle, tells us that a cohort, a Roman cohort, a cohort was five or six hundred soldiers. Now, we don't know if all five or six hundred came to arrest twelve men, but they came in the middle of the night with torches and lanterns, with swords, spears, whatever else, to arrest Jesus. Remember the story how it goes? They're approaching, and Jesus says to them, Whom do you seek? And their response was, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what happened next? Three words. Remember what the words were? Jesus looked at him and said, I am he. And at those three words, the Roman cohort, they fell down. Flat on their backs. Now that's exciting, but listen, this is what's even more exciting. Man, wouldn't you love to be there? Because you can see Peter's mind working. Peter's standing there, and he sees everybody get flattened. So he sees the Roman cohort on their backs because Jesus says three words, I am he. And so Peter's thinking, men, draw your swords. We can lick these guys. And he pulls his sword out. And don't you believe for a minute that he was aiming for Malchus's ear. He wanted to lop that man's head off because it didn't matter if they got back up. Jesus, say those those words again, Jesus. (laughs) We can take these guys. Why? Because Peter understood who was on his team. Peter understood the gospel of peace. The name of Jesus has that kind of power. Several years ago as a teenager, I worked in a little mom and pop's um, market like Jerry and Melinda Burt's market. And one night I got off work and I told the guy, the, the friend that I work with, I said, let me run down and get us a pizza. So I called up, ordered the pizza, went down just down the street a few blocks. Pulled in the parking lot. Just as I got out of the car, up rolled a old 50 Chevy. Three guys got out. You know, hard guys, we called them those days. Hoods. You can always tell those guys because the way they wore their pants. It was always down real low, you know, on their hips. And these guys were just lit up. I mean, they had been drinking to excess. And I was trying to mind my own business. I was making a beeline for the pizza counter when they kind of surrounded me. You know, it's, it's interesting about people that drink too much. They either, they either think they're the greatest lovers in the world or the greatest fighters, don't they? Well, they did not plan on loving me up that night. They, they wanted to whoop me, you know. And so so I uh, tried to mind my own business. I, you know, they cornered me, and they're bad-mouthing and saying all sorts of things, trying to pick a fight. And I realized that I'm in trouble. I got two options. One is to fight and, and, and get really hurt. Or two, to talk my way out of it. And all of a sudden, it's like God gave me this. You know, it's like I, I saw this one fellow and I recognized just, a, you know, kind of the semblance of somebody I might have seen before. And I said to him, I said, aren't you a friend of Dave Rader? Now, Dave Rader and I were pretty good friends in high school. And Dave went on to play some professional baseball for San Francisco Giants. And Dave was a really neat young man. And uh, Dave was used on that campus. We went on to work with Young Life together. But I picked Dave Rader's name because everybody knew Dave Rader. And this guy said to me, he says, yeah, I, I know Dave Rader. Do you know Dave Rader? You betcha I know Dave Rader. And he looked at his friends. He said, hey, leave this guy alone, man. He's okay. He knows Dave Rader. See, at the name 
of Jesus, we have that kind of power. We can stand. We can resist the forces of evil. The fourth piece of equipment is that we are to take up the shield of faith. Now, the Roman soldiers used two shields in those days. One, a small one, one a large. Paul is referring to the large one here. It was about four feet tall by about two feet wide. And it was designed to really protect soldiers from the flinging arrows. Now, now, many of you probably have seen the movie Braveheart. I, Judy and I went here a few weeks back, and that movie depicts this this uh, shield incredibly. In one of the war battles, remember it was William Wallace, the Scottish leader who got his compatriots together. They were outnumbered, what, 20, 30 to 1? England, uh, magnificent army, fantastic army with all of the armament that they needed to destroy any of their opponents. And the first thing that they would do is they would announce to the archers, shoot the arrows. And literally hundreds, maybe thousands of arrows would pour in, rain in on these soldiers. And you saw William Wallace and those Scottish men get behind that shield. Remember that? For those of you who saw it? Literally, your, your, your shield would be stuck with, uh, filled with arrows all through it. And that's how they protected themselves. Well, what does this shield represent spiritually? Well, as we go about our business of doing God's work, I believe the devil will try to prevent us by shooting these fiery darts, these arrows, these flaming missiles at us. Now, the devil's darts include a variety of things, don't they? You've experienced them. You get up early in the morning to have your devotional time, your quiet time. And what does he do? He flings an arrow at you. And you have this lewd thought. And you think, here I am reading God's word and I'm having these terrible thoughts. Or you sit down and you open up the scriptures in a Bible study and all of a sudden you begin to want to challenge. You doubt the word of God. You, you think about open rebellion and disobedience because you, you doubt God's word. Well, where, where is that coming from? It's coming from the evil one. See, he wants to use these flaming arrows to disarm you and I. He wants to paralyze us. Well, how is it that we respond? Proverbs 35 says that God himself is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So what he's saying is through faith, folks, we we flee. We run to this shield. And God is our shield. We don't have time to look at Psalms, but when you read through the Psalms, take a close look at the life of David. That man was accused. Uh, he was slandered. Accusations were made. Uh, lies were made about him. And where did David go? Well, it says that he fled to God as his refuge because of his faith in God. So that's what we can do as well. Take up our faith, that shield of faith, and flee to God. The fifth piece of armor is a helmet which was made of bronze or some form of metal. It was lined with either felt of some sort or cloth or sponge because the weight of the helmet was almost unbearable. You can just imagine a heavy piece of armor like that. It was so strong that, that the only thing that could penetrate it was a, a, a hammer or an axe as somebody would come down on that, that helmet. Paul enlightens us in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 when he says that spiritually this helmet is the hope of our salvation. I don't believe Paul is talking about past salvation, but the hope of our eternal, ultimate salvation here. Remember that I said the shield was a place where we could flee to for the present accusations and, and attacks that come our way? We trust God in the present. 
Here I think what Paul is talking about is that we trust God in the future for the ultimate outcome of our salvation. And really when it comes right down to it, that's our greatest defense, isn't it? Is that we are saved, men and women. Now you may be uh, presently in a spiritual battle where you have put on the armor, but you feel like you're losing ground. You feel like you're losing the battle. Things are looking pretty dark. I have a friend right now that's in a difficult marriage, and uh, there's days that we've talked that that he feels that life is not worth living. But that's where this helmet of salvation comes in. It's a good reminder that, hey, even though you think the enemy is coming along and he's going to deliver the final blow to your head, that, wait a minute, wait a minute, you, you got this helmet of salvation on that lets the devil know and lets us know that we're well taken care of, that it protects us ultimately from any harm that they, Satan can, can deliver. Charles Hodge wrote, That which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he or she is saved. Well, I rest on that daily when I get defeated, down, that ultimately I win. That my salvation is secure. The sixth and last piece of armor is the sword. Now the Roman soldiers had two swords. The long sword and the short sword. The one that Paul refers to is the latter one here. The short sword. It was for in close hand to hand combat. It's the only piece of equipment that's, that's mentioned. That is both a defensive weapon as well as an offensive one. Paul clearly identifies this sword as the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. In other words, Paul says that the Spirit of God puts this sword, that is the Word of God, into our hands for two reasons. One, for defense, against the temptations of God, uh, of Satan. And secondly, as an offensive weapon in terms of evangelizing, in terms of sharing our faith with others, sharing the Word of God with our friends and loved ones. The author of Hebrews describes just how powerful this weapon is in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jesus himself put on this sword of the spirit, didn't he? The word of God. Jesus used it when the great accuser tempted him. And what did he do? He quoted Deuteronomy. Jesus used it in confronting the false teachings of the Pharisees by quoting scripture. Jesus used it when the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the authority of the word, he didn't, Jesus didn't try to defend the word, he just used the word. Because it's that powerful, it's that sharp. Now we Christians often, I think, are, are reluctant to use God's word, the scriptures. In my own life, years ago, I used to think, as a young man, well, if, if I use the Word of God, they're not going to listen to it because they don't even believe in the Word of God. But, but think about this for a minute. If you're a soldier, and you're in a battle, and you have a sword, and your enemy is approaching you, and even though your enemy does not believe in your sword and its effectiveness, are you going to lay your sword down? Absolutely not. You're going to take the sword and whack him, even if he doesn't believe in the power of your sword. Well, that's the same thing is true for the Word of God. Whether people believe to choose in God's Word or not, we need to use it because it's, it protects us and it's effective in, in, in guiding lead, leading people to the truth. I believe that one of the major weaknesses today in, in, in the modern church is due to the neglect 
of us using this weapon, this word. And if you and I want to withstand the attacks of the enemy, we need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We need to memorize. I've been guilty for years of not memorizing scripture. And God led me to a young believer this year. Uh, and we started studying the scriptures together, going through a little navigator's booklet. And God has me memorizing scripture again. I'd forgotten how good and rich it is to memorize scripture and then to use it as a weapon when the devil attacks me. Well, finally, Paul wants us to understand in verses 18 and 19 that even though we have all the equipment, all the armor, there's one more thing we need to do. He says in in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf as well, Paul says, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul wants us to understand that before, during, and after the conflict, the battle, we better be praying. Why before? Well, before the battle, I don't know about you, but I begin to have doubts. I have fears. I get intimidated by the enemy. I'm going to be real transparent. You know how scared I get to come up here on Sunday mornings to preach the good news? That's not coming from Jesus. That's the enemy saying, Dennis, you're not worthy. You've got no right to stand up there. What about the things you said and did to your family last week? So I get afraid from time to time. So God says, Paul says, pray before the battle. And what do we pray for? Well, we pray for verse 10. That my strength is in the Lord, that my strength and might comes from Him. That's the confidence that I have. That's the guarantee that I have. Then he says, pray during the battle. Why? Because it's so easy to get discouraged in the middle of battle, isn't it? You get worn out. Just like my friend that I referred to that's in in a difficult marriage right now. He's worn out. So I pray that he does not become discouraged. Finally, we pray at the end of the battle because... Why? The war is not over yet. That's just one skirmish. And we pray uh, that God will deliver us from the temptation that comes from lust and pride. And that's what happens when we win a battle. If we quit praying. That's what happened to uh, the life of King David. When he should have been out in the battlefield with his men, he was at home. And he unfortunately quit his watchful spirit of prayer. And he got tempted to lust. And his pride took over. We're out of time. So we're going to quit right here. Let me me just say this. We've got these six pieces of armor. And and this has just been kind of a short theology of spiritual warfare, warfare today. There's those out there that believe and advocate that we have to go around looking for demons behind every bush and behind every sin. They go around advocating exorcisms, uh, certain methods and ways to deal with demons. But as I read scripture, I see that if we put on these six pieces of armor, we are equipped, ladies and gentlemen, to withstand all the evil all the power, all the wickedness, all the cunningness that he is going to throw at us. John Newton put it this way. Though many foes beset you round and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ in God beyond the realm of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not faint, or fainting shall not die. Jesus, the strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. 
Though unperceived by mortal sense, faith sees him always near. A guide, a glory, a defense. Then what have you or I to fear? As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for all, you so surely you that love his name shall in him triumph too. The battle's there, folks. We're not only servants of Jesus Christ, we're not only saints of Jesus Christ, but we are called to be soldiers as well. I pray that we get in the battle and we stand, 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 stand firm. Let's pray and then Bill will have you come back up. Father, there are days when I don't want to get out of bed and face this enemy because I know of his power and his cunning, wicked, evil tactics against my life and against my dear brothers and sisters here. But, But Lord, thank you for these words of Apostle Paul. God, they give me a sense of hope. Like I've never had before. In the deepest dark attacks that come our way in this life, Lord, you provide the armor. Thank you for that. May we use your armor. May you empower us with your armor. That we will not only be a defensive soldier, but an offensive one as well. In Christ's name, we thank you. We praise you. We we ask for your help in these areas. Amen.